You're listening to Bead, History for the Church, a conversation with Drs. Michael A.G. Haken and Mike Pullman. Dr. Haken serves as the Chair and Professor of Church History at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he is on the core faculty of Heritage Theological Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario. Dr. Pullman is Associate Professor of Practical Theology and the Chair of the Department of the Ministry and Proclamation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Broadcasting the Faith, Radio and Theology in America, 1920 to 1950. Join us now as we seek to see what God has done in the history of his people. Andrew Fuller, when he was just 25 years old, wrote in his diary on Tuesday, January 10th, 1780, these words. One thing in particular I would pray for, namely, that I may not only be kept from erroneous principles, but may so love the truth as never to keep it back. O Lord, if you will open my eyes to behold the wonders of your word and give me to feel their transforming tendency, then shall the Lord be my God. Then let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth if I shun to declare to the best of my knowledge the whole counsel of God. Well, this was Fuller's labor in life to make known the whole counsel of God, and not only in his native England, but around the world. You see, he was a global Christian before it was uh, really cool to be called one. When people think of the 18th century giants of the Christian church, Andrew Fuller isn't usually the first name that comes to mind, but it should be. A faithful Baptist pastor for 40 years, prolific writer, exceptional preacher, missionary leader alongside William Carey, apologist, husband, father, one who endured tremendous suffering throughout his life. These are many of the reasons to consider Andrew Fuller. Well, this is why it's really good. I do a podcast with Michael Haken. Michael, perhaps no one has done more than you over the last 20 years to introduce Andrew Fuller to a new generation of Christians. In addition to being a professor of church history here at Southern Seminary, you're also the director of the Andrew Fuller Center for Baptist Studies and the author or editor of, I, I lost track, I can't count, I don't know how many books on or by Fuller you've been associated with. And one in particular we want to feature today is a volume you did with, uh, a volume you did with H&E Publishing called Reading Andrew Fuller. So let me just come right to you, Michael, and ask, why have you given so much of your scholarly life to Andrew Fuller. In other words, what's so special about this particular Baptist? Well, I think uh, there's a number of uh, reasons that, uh, or a number of factors that drew me to Fuller. Uh, certainly one of them is his uh, rootage as a particular Baptist. So he's a Baptist, he's Calvinistic. Um, and I'm a big believer in um, being able to sympathize with those that you write about as a historian. Um, I don't think it's helpful to spend an enormous amount of time working with people that you have major, major disagreements with and you find uh, really difficult in terms of kind of syncing with their personality. Uh, Fuller, <clears throat> Fuller is very attractive in terms of his theology to me, uh, coming out of a background of uh, uh, being a Baptist and being Calvinistic. When I first started doing uh, Baptist studies or history in the mid-1980s, um, I began to uh, be concerned that the, the Baptists that were often brought forward as models in the context in which I lived, um, which is Ontario, were, in my mind, sometimes problematic figures. And probably the big guy was T.T. Shields, Thomas Todd Hunter Shields at uh, Toronto Baptist Seminary. And while he has stood for the gospel in a very difficult scenario, the, the whole battle of fundamentalism and modernism in the 1920s is the larger background. Um, there's a lot about his personality that is not attractive at all. The way he dealt with other, other Christian leaders, his inability to work with others and so on. And so I, I really realized I, I need to go back further than this. I, I need to go back to find models that are much further back in time. And um, 
it would have been around 1985 uh, 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 in the library of what was then Central Baptist Seminary on uh, Jonesville Crescent in Toronto. And I can still remember uh, taking uh, the third volume of what is now the Sprinkle edition of Andrew Fuller's works, an 1845 edition published by the um, American uh, Sunday School Association that was based in Philadelphia, or Baptist publication, sorry, based in Philadelphia. And um, opening it at random, I'd never heard of Fuller, and the, the, it fell open to a section where Fuller is talking about the necessity of the Holy Spirit for missions. And I was immediately gripped because <clears throat> not only was his writing very incisive and significant, but also I had a long-term fascination with the Holy Spirit. And in retrospect, I've seen this as a providential event. Because I think if I'd opened it anything else, probably I wouldn't have paid as much attention. But that drew me to read the whole article. And then I thought, who is this man and what else has he written? Were you surprised at all, Michael? When you, this is fascinating to me. It was his work in missions, and in particular, the, the doctrine of pneumatology or the Holy Spirit that drew you to him. Uh, were you surprised when you realized he was a particular Baptist after that? Were you at all surprised when you realized this is a Calvinist talking about missions and the power of the Holy Spirit? Or was that not at all odd to you? No, no, that, that wasn't odd to me because I, 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 I really didn't know much about the particular Baptists at all. And um, when I was hired to teach at Central Baptist Seminary, the academic dean, Ted Barton, um, <clears throat> the school had had problems with the previous church historian. He'd been a young Calvinist, and he'd really kind of made a lot of waves in the school, not good waves, maybe. And so uh, Ted Barton said to me, so in the interview, uh, what, what do you think about the five points of Calvinism? Now, I had a PhD in history, and I had never studied I'd never studied Calvinism in the 16th or 17th century. So I said, I, I have no idea what the five points in Calvinism are. If you tell me what they are, I'll tell you what I think of them. He never, he never told me what they were because that was a great answer. He figured, okay, the guy's safe. If, if uh, he doesn't know what these things are, he's not going to cause us any problems. Let, let's just keep him in ignorance. You know, we'll just yeah, keep so they, <laughs> yeah, what, what Ted and he was a very helpful brother in many ways. What he didn't know was that the previous church historian had so indoctrinated, quote unquote, the students in the classes I would teach that invariably they were going to raise the question and force me to grapple with it. And within a year, I was a four-point Calvinist. Okay. So the, the strategy didn't work. But I really, I really didn't know that <laughs> This, this kind of uh, idea that Baptists really aren't interested in the Holy Spirit, and especially Calvinistic Baptists aren't interested in the Holy Spirit. Well, that's, you know, ignorance can be bliss. You know, it, it took yeah. you into a, a, a historical figure and an era uh, that you didn't resist initially because you didn't have all these preconceived ideas. And, and so that's good. Well, I'm, I'm amazed. Were you amazed, Michael, when you realized how prolific Fuller was? I, I still don't know how, have you tallied the volumes? I mean, I know we can, and you're the general editor of a new critical edition of his works, uh, but there, there, he was one of the more prolific writers of the 18th century. Yeah, he's enormously prolific. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's probably half a dozen men, uh, Wesley, Edwards, uh, John Gill, uh, Fuller, uh, who are enormously prolific in terms mm -hmm. of their writing. And again, you have to remember that for many of these men, these men were not academics who had sabbaticals and taught, you know, taught 12 hours a week and had tutorial assistants as we do at Southern, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, please, please stop reminding me of that. It's just convicting when you start talking that way. When I look at all that he wrote, you're right. He didn't get an assistant at his church there until three years before he died. Right, so, or May four, so it was like eighteen eleven when he finally got an yeah. assistant, and he's and he's this prolific. But I interrupt. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, they're enormously prolific, and then uh, then again, they're not. They don't have, you know, even what we may have started with, like typewriters uh, to date us. Uh, they don't have any of that, let alone uh, more modern uh, technology for creating print. Uh, they've got a quill pen which you have to dip on a regular basis. You have to sharpen the nib on a regular basis. Um, it, it is just amazing. And what is amazing is Fuller, in addition to Fuller's correspondence, 
I mean, mm -hmm. at this point, uh, we're going to be doing a critical edition of his letters as part of the critical edition of all his works. And at this point, I mean, I think we've got somewhere in the vicinity of a thousand letters. Um, I have an assistant working with me, Jared Skinner, one of my PhD students. And Jared in the last year has found 150 letters, about 100 letters that nobody knew anything about. And I'm just positive Excellent. there's letters out there we have no idea. But in addition to all of his formal writing, he's writing letters galore, um, spending enormous amounts of time into the evening and in the wee morning hours of the morning uh, corresponding regarding mission. Right, Michael, these aren't text messages. No, these are no. substantive letters. He's sitting down, he's writing, and many times it would seem young Christians discipling them through letters. Uh, and here we could actually make a, a plug for pulling out the pen and paper. I mean, you're right, you might go slower, but that might yield more thoughtfulness using that quill pen, having to dip it uh, rather than firing off emails at the speed of click, right? Yep. So, yeah. Some real thoughtfulness. Now, I want to ask you this, Michael. Again, you've done so much work with Fuller. Uh, I guess I'd put it this way. I, I look at his writings, and he wrote in so many different genres. So I would ask, was Fuller a pastor? Was he a preacher? Was he a missiologist? Was he an apologist? Uh, was he an organizer? You know, of uh, you know, when you think of his mission work with the Baptist Missionary Society. Uh, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you classify Fuller in terms of his expertise, it was varied. Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, he is first and foremost a pastor. That's how he begins, that's how he ends his life. Um, but in addition to that, he is an administrative secretary for the Baptist Missionary Society. Um, he's crafting a role for himself. This person didn't exist prior to him stay. The BMS, the Baptist Missionary Society, was the first Anglophone mission to do cross-cultural missions. Uh, so, Societies like it didn't exist, so he has to create his own job description. Um, he is an apologist. He discovers that in the 1780s when he writes um, the gospel, worthy, gospel of Christ worthy of all acceptation, which is a response to the prevalent, at least in his area of the particular Baptist community in England, uh, hyper-Calvinism was prevalent. And he is very aware that um, hyper-Calvinism is not helpful spiritually. It hadn't been helpful for him. He grew up under hyper-Calvinist ministry. But when he becomes a pastor, he's got no other model of preaching. And so he refuses to preach to the lost because he doesn't know how to. And he realizes as he's reading the book of Acts and the Gospel of John that this is not the way Jesus or the early disciples preached. But he has no other model. And so he begins to grapple with the question of, can we present the gospel to the non-elect in all of its freeness and, and uh, promise? Uh, the regnant wisdom of hyper-Calvinism was, no, we cannot, because they're dead in sin. They're not spiritually alive. The only way they can respond to the gospel is if the Spirit is in them, drawing them. Um, and Fuller, Fuller felt, well, this doesn't click with uh, the way the, the apostles preached. It doesn't click with the way Jesus preached. He, he seems to, in John, uh, talk to unbelievers um, as if they could respond to the gospel. And so the big question here, the bigger question philosophically and theologically, is the issue of freedom. And the hyper-Calvinists so emphasized divine freedom, the freedom of God to choose whom he wanted, um, and downplayed human freedom that uh, the, the, the experience of conversion then was completely passive on the part of the, believe, of the, 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 the person who become a believer. Uh, even faith, faith is a gift of God, they'd emphasized. Uh, faith is not something you can do. You cannot believe. You cannot respond to the gospel. Now, of course, Fuller would agree with that. I mean, he would say faith is a gift as a Calvinist, but he just felt that that sinners have a duty to to respond to the gospel, and so uh, faith is both a gift and a duty that God mm -hmm, requires of you. Mm -hmm. 
And what the uh, what Fuller realized is that the hyper-Calvinists denied one part of that. They denied the, the duty part. But he also realized that Arminians denied the gift part. Mm-hmm. And so for him, biblical Calvinism was the biblical medium between these two extremes. And not only the word of God, Michael, right, was convincing him at this time, uh, but he was reading Augustine. And then from Augustine to the Reformers. And he, he couldn't, his, the hyper-Calvinism that he was reared under didn't, didn't accord with what he was reading, even in church history, some of these giants of the faith. Yeah, probably the most significant figure he's reading is uh, Jonathan Edwards. Mm-hmm. Um, he's reading John Owen. Mm-hmm. Uh, Owen is probably the most powerful influence on him after Scripture up until, probably up until around 1790. So you think it would change? I know at one point he says, the theologian I esteem most is John Owen, but then maybe at yeah, a point. Yeah, it, oh, oh, yeah, it changes. Okay. Yeah, he wouldn't have said that in the last 20, 25 years of Would his he have life. said Edwards then? Edwards, okay. yeah. And what was it about yeah. Edwards maybe that, that appealed to him more than an Owen or just at least as much as? Edwards is a contemporary. Mm-hmm. So you've got, you've got the prolix prose of an Owen. And um, I mean, when you, read, when you read 18th century men, and as opposed to 17th century men, there is, a va- there is a significant difference in the way that they construct their sentences and their prose. And uh, I know that there's been a fabulous resurgence of reading Puritan literature. Mm-hmm. But for 18th century men, they didn't always find 17th century literature easy to get through in terms of its dense prose. But I think more than that, I think um, Edwards is wrestling with the great question of the great theme of the 18th century, which is freedom. Yeah. Well, natural natural will, moral will, or moral ability, natural ability, moral ability, we're getting there, right? Those sorts yeah. of things. But also even more political, political freedom, okay. slavery yeah. issues. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, we most a lot of people don't know about this, but the first sexual revolution takes place in the 18th century, where men argued that uh, there should be no there should be no restrictions on how they use the bodies of women. Uh, they didn't want women to be able to to do that, vice versa. And there's a number of libertines in the 18th century that are arguing this for freedom. So freedom is a massive theme of the 18th century, in a way that it's not of the 17th, and uh, Fuller. Fuller f- resonated with Edwards in a number of ways. And so Edwards becomes the critical figure for Fuller in terms of uh, theological mentorship. It's interesting, Michael, when you bring up freedom like that, whether not just, you know, our, our freedom of the will, we're talking about when when Fuller lived, we had the French Revolution going on right late 1789. And then we've got the American Revolution, so across the pond, and um, we've, we've got 1775 up to 1783. So what what a time in world history that Fuller was living and writing and thinking and considering uh, the gospel with respect to these issues of, of freedom with whole nations going to war over it. Yeah. Incredible time. Yeah, I think um, Ful- <clears throat> it is. And I think that's why I think Fuller is helpful for our day. Because the political radicalism, and we, uh, I mean, people might not think the American Revolution is radical. It is, it is f- enormously radical. Because what the American, American revolutionaries are arguing is that the traditional hierarchical society that Britain represented has to be completely retooled. That instead of a aristocracy dominating every facet of culture, um, they wanted a, a meritocracy uh, in one sense, that men and women can, can uh, by, their, by the merits of their own gifts and strength, can, can make, make headway in a society, rather than, uh, who was who your father? <clears throat> what was, what was the, the house you were born into? And similar things going on in France. I mean, in the ancient regime. Yep, exa- exactly. And uh, all of it uh, is a larger 
struggle in the 18th century against tradition and against mm -hmm. the ancients as opposed to the moderns. And even though you can see the influence of tradition in the founders of the American Republic, as opposed to, say, the architects of the French Revolution, there nonetheless is this desire abroad in the 18th century. We want to chuck the past, you know, the Enlightenment, uh, people like Hume mm -hmm. and Rousseau, as well as, you know, the French revolutionaries. But also, to some degree, the American Revolution is seen that way as well, to some degree. Um, one mm -hmm. has to remember that a conservative like Ed Edwin Burke actually supported the uh, American Revolution, but was implacably hostile to the French Revolution. To the French, exactly. Yeah, yeah it was, uh, well, Thomas Paine over, uh, you know, in, in America. And so th this is the context of, of Fuller's ministry and just, just fascinating. I want to circle back, Michael, and get your thoughts on this. And you, you had alluded to it, but um, in the, in the, new critical edition that you serve as general editor over. I've been spending a lot of time in Fuller's diary. Uh, I've appreciated that. And Timothy Whelan, who you know, of course, writes the introduction to that, to that work uh, of Fuller's diary. And he says uh, in the introduction, he writes of the quote, transformational power of Fuller's evangelical Calvinism. And for our listeners, and this, this differentiates him from the hyper-Calvinism of his day, but what, what is evangelical Calvinism, and, and what did that look like in Fuller's life? How did it come out in his writings? Yeah, evangelical Calvinism has a, probably a number of uh, characteristics or facets. Uh, certainly one of them is just the, the evangel. There is the, the preaching of the gospel to all and sundry. Uh, Fuller became convinced after his work, The Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation, uh, came out in uh, 1785, that not only must the gospel be preached to all and sundry in the British Isles and in America, but throughout the world. And so evangelical Calvinism is a Calvinism that takes seriously God's sovereignty, but also takes seriously human responsibility to take the gospel to mm -hmm. the ends of the earth. Um, God's not going to use angels to do this. God has God's going to use human beings. And if we refuse, God, Fuller said, God will raise up others in our place. Mm -hmm. And, and that, this, this kind of thinking, this kind of theology gives birth to the Baptist Missionary Society. I know it had another name at its founding, but here we are in 1792. And just so our listeners can understand how theology looks like something. And here's evangelical Calvinism giving birth in the providence of God, to the modern missionary movement. And when we think of the Baptist Missionary Society, we often think of William Carey. So I want to put this question to you, Michael, because you've spent far more time with Fuller than, than I have. But, but I want to ask you, when you think of the, the modern missionary movement and, and the Baptist Missionary Society, uh, who's more important to this modern missionary movement, Fuller or carry now they were both together in the founding of it and and i and I, I want to put it to you this way does it depend on what you consider more important being lowered down or holding the rope and maybe you can tell us a little story about that what do what do i mean by this uh image of being lowered down or holding the rope different roles to play yeah I, i'm not sure you can actually even answer that question adequately i mean who's who, who is who's more important uh i mean they're both needed um, yes. I mean, Carey could not take off by himself to India. I mean, within six months of his landing in Calcutta, he was he had no money. And he had to take a job as a manager of an indigo factory about 200 miles north of Calcutta in Mudnabati. Um, and he needed he needed the brethren back in England. He needed them to pray. He needed them to raise finances, to raise missionary awareness among churches. After all, this had never been done before. And Fuller did so much of that, right? traveling around, talking about the missionary society, raising money, but go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. He needed co-workers to be sent out. Uh, he needed exactly what you described there. But on the other hand, um, uh, Fuller needed Carey to go. I mean, somebody had to go. And you have, you have this story that you, you alluded to, uh, which uh, it, 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 it's not apocryphal, 
But Fuller mentions at one point, he says, it was as if, you know, as we discussed this, this would be in the, the very late 1780s. So 1788, 89, the French Revolution has broken out. Uh, Britain is being dragged into a war with their old enemy, France, whom they have fought every decade since the 1690, 1680s. And England eventually is going to be on, in a situation of total war. Uh, it's a it's a it's a world war. It's fought in the in Europe. It's fought in the Atlantic. It's fought in the New World to some degree. It's fought in the in the in the in Africa and Asia. And um, against this background, uh, Fuller and Carey are thinking of missions. And Fuller said it was as if, you know, Carey came to us and said he'd found a gold mine in India. And Carey said to us, and I'm willing to go down into the mine. The idea of being lowered down by ropes, but he asked. He said he, he asked us, "Would we hold the ropes?" And Fuller said, "We pledge to hold them till we die." It was a solemn, solemn pledge. And the men who sent Kerry uh, to India, um, all of them except for one, and we're looking at a dozen individuals, were were loyal to that commitment to Kerry. Um, the one Edward Sharman ended up becoming a Unitarian. And uh, that's an interesting story in its own right. But it's a great it's a great story. Isn't it? And just to the brotherhood that came together, motivated by their theology, to take the gospels, the gospel to the nations. And reckon we talk about it this way today, and you know, we have senders and goers. And that rope story is talking about that very thing. You gotta have people mm-hmm. back home holding the rope. But you got to have people being willing to be lowered down, right, into the Indias, into, you know, wherever, wherever God calls. And it's, it's a, a powerful story yeah, exactly. of the importance of both ends, right? And so I think yep. you're right, Michael. I just agree with you. It's really a, a dumb question your co-host asked. No, it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. You can't it, answer. It's a question. No, it's a question that it doesn't admit of an answer one That's way or right. the other. Agree. Um, no, I agree. It, it's just maybe I'm wanting to put the emphasis for the purposes of this program on the one holding the rope because we often and rightfully celebrate William Carey and we give praise to God for the carries that go. But I think Fuller, and you tell me if you agree, is, is overshadowed in the history of the church in terms of importance to the modern missionary movement because he happened to be the one holding the rope. And yet we would say it's vitally important. You need both. Yeah, Fuller is overshadowed. Um, this is not atypical of, of Christian history. Uh, hist- Christian historians have done this, you know. Who remembers Johann Staupitz? You know, who was Staupitz? Uh, or Peter Böhler, who was he? You know, he's the man who leads both Charles and John Wesley to Christ. Um, so we, we have a tendency to do this. In Fuller's case and Carey's case, it's it's more problematic because... Uh, Carey is lauded as this iconic figure of mission in the in the 19th century, but beyond his um, his inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen, the book that he published in 1792 defending cross cultural missions around the world, he wrote nothing virtually. I mean, he's got a diary, he's got some letters, but Fuller is the the missionary strategist, the theologian of of the mission to India. And because Carey is the pioneer of or becomes the the modern missionary movement, Fuller really is the theological brains behind this. He is he's the thinker behind the movement, right? And and movements need thinkers. Uh, we've had so many movements throughout evangelicalism that peter out for lack of thoughtfulness, I mean theological weight undergirding them, right? So a lot a lot of energy, but sometimes uh, not a lot of thoughtfulness, theological thoughtfulness. And, and Fuller had that. Uh, speaking of his writings, Michael, if I could pivot a little bit, uh, mm-hmm. I want to I highlight one of the many books you've been involved with, either writing about Fuller, biographical works, or editing. And you, you edited a volume for H&E Publishing. And I want to give a shameless plug. Our listeners out there really need to get this book. And you can get it 
at a discount, you can go to the website at Hesed and Amet. Let me spell that for you. H-E-S-E-D-A-N-D-E-M-E-T dot com. And with the promotion code BEAD2021, you can get this volume by our own Michael Haken, Reading Andrew Fuller. And what I mentioned at the beginning of the program, Michael, but I love what you've done here because you've you've mined uh, how many chapters here? I think there's a 12. 12. Yeah, there's tw- 12 chapters. This is primary source work. So what you're doing, what every good historian should do, you're resurrecting the dead and letting them speak. <laughs> That's what you do here. Yeah. But you, yeah. you give some good <clears throat> introductions to each chapter to help us know what we're about to hear. But then you let us hear from in this case, the man himself. And maybe you can maybe share with our listeners and with me a little bit of what led you to these 12 chapters. What was kind of the process of compiling this particular selection? Well, one of the things I wanted to do in the selection, and the selection was produced for a webinar I gave in the early months of the, the pandemic. Um, the pandemic forced a lot of us in our teaching to move online. And um, I realized, yeah, I, I, could, I could do something like this in the summer months. And uh, the director of Hesed and Emmett, uh, Chance Faulkner, asked about the possibility of doing a webinar. And that, you know, rather than simply within the confines of, of uh, doing a class for, for Southern, uh, we could do it broader. People could do it for a class for Southern, but more broader. And so... Um, we came up with 12 readings. We took basically three months um, to do this. And um, well, actually, no, we did, we did it in two months because we did it twice a week. So we would have had about 16 meetings. The 12 uh, readings, I, wanted, I didn't want to get into any of his big, big apologetic works per se, because uh, how to extract them is not always easy. And so I dealt with fairly small uh, text, no more than maybe 15, 20 pages, that some of them were sermons. Uh, we wanted his confession of faith. We wanted to deal with issues of revival, um, pastoral ordination. Fuller has left more ordination sermons than any other figure of the 18th century. Wow, um, I didn't know that. He was probably he was probably at somewhere between 30 to 40 ordinations in which he was the main speaker. Maybe, wow. maybe more, uh, which we don't know. Um, so I wanted to do something on that. I wanted to touch on some of his theological battles. Uh, we looked at the one he's had with uh, Robert Robinson, who is a very well-known Baptist leader, uh, professed conversion under George Whitfield, but in his latter years got into fast company with Unitarianism or Unitarians like Joseph Priestley. Um, Fuller's response to Alec uh, William Vidler, who was a uh, universalist, and also denied eternal punishment, obviously. Um, and then other more con- in things that he used for building up the faith. Uh, there's a tract he wrote on baptism, which is fabulous. I wanted to touch on his view of the role of women in the life of the church. So we had a number of, of, of these things that uh, hopefully give a, 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 a round picture of Fuller. I think it does. Um, and that's what I'm, it's so impressive about it. And I, it's, it's not just one theme you're carrying out here. It does show how, how thoughtful, if I could put it that way, uh, Fuller was in, in a lot of different areas. Uh, for example, you mentioned uh, the Holy Spirit early on and what drew you to him, missions in the Holy Spirit. There's a selection here, the promise of the Spirit. Uh, you, you, you're right. He taught, he, there's a section here to the Christian females of Great Britain. Uh, yep. We talked about freedom on liberty, this chapter four uh, yep. on liberty. One I wanted to ask you about, though, Michael, maybe as I, as I look at the time, I want to get right to this. Uh, again, for our listeners, I'm, we're, we're talking about Michael Haken's book, Reading Andrew Fuller with H&E Publishing, and we'll have links to this uh, on, the, on the website. Uh, Christian patriotism seems like a very relevant theme for our day with a lot of the things going on in the world and as I think about things here, I know you're in Canada and, and me here in the United States. Uh, Christian patriotism. Uh, what Maybe summarize for us a little bit or, or one of the main ideas that, that he tries to press home in this sermon. This is, as you mentioned, some of these are sermons, 
This is a sermon out of Jeremiah that he's giving. Yeah, this sermon was preached on the potential of a invasion of England by Napoleon Bonaparte during the the revolutionary wars that France exercised after the French Revolution. Uh, the war with England eventually morphed into what we call the Napoleonic Wars, uh, because Napoleon Bonaparte seized uh, control of the French government. And uh, for about half a year, the French massed troops and and uh, boats at Boulogne, just across the English Channel. Um, it would be the place, that area of, of uh, northern France, that during the Second World War, Hitler was convinced uh, when the invasion of Europe took place, it would be at that point. Because that's the shortest, that's the shortest amount of, t of, of, of water that you have to cross to get to England. It's about 20 miles, 25 miles. Um, and um, uh, Napoleon had massed a huge army here and was preparing to every intent and purpose, preparing to cross the channel. And Fuller preached a sermon uh, in which he raised the question of what should we do in light of the French invasion? Uh, should we take up arms against the French? And the, the answer was, yeah, uh, in, 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 of course it will, we have to take up arms uh, to defend our nation. But it led into a whole discussion of what when can Christians go to war? And how should they support their country? And is there such a thing as Christian patriotism? Well, I was he, he obviously he thinks there is. There is such a thing, but not not with without governance, not without qualification is more the. And I want to read you an excerpt that you're very familiar with, obviously. Uh, but for our for our listeners, and hear you comment on this, and listen to how Fuller. Uh, it's not an unbridled patriotism, but it's it's governed by the gospel. Well, let me read it. Uh, this is on page 125 of chapter 9, Christian Patriotism. And listen to his specific reference. Uh, our listeners should listen to his specific reference to slavery. And I find this uh, very uh, important. He says, quote, To prevent mistakes, however, it is proper to observe that the patriotism required of us, that is of Christians, is not that the love of our country is not the love of country which clashes with universal benevolence or which seeks its prosperity at the expense of the general happiness of mankind. Such was the patriotism of Greece and Rome, and such is that of all others where Christian principle is not allowed to direct it. It's important. Such, I am ashamed to say, is that with which some have advocated the cause of slavery. It is necessary to the wealth of this country, they say. No, if my country cannot prosper, but at the expense of justice, humanity, and the happiness of mankind, let it be unprosperous. What do you think of that, Michael? That's he's ahead of his time. Yeah, I think Fuller here is probably drawing to some degree from his own background as a Baptist, uh, marginalized in that world. And... Um, but yet also as being somebody who is English and British. So there is a place for Christian patriotism. There is a desire. I mean, the text he uses from Jeremiah is the one where God tells the people of Israel they are to pray for the prosperity of the nation of Babylon. And uh, Fuller basically rightly asked, if that was asked of, of the Jewish people for a pagan nation, how much more do we as Christians need to pray for a nation where Christianity is professedly the religion, uh, the state religion. And so there is a place for loving one's country. Uh, Fuller is not a pacifist. There is a place for taking up arms in defense of the nation. But he was very well aware. Um, his ministry is being done against the backdrop of imperial advance of the British Empire. And uh, by, by the late 18th century, Britain has moved from being a seagoing power where if you talked about her empire, it was an empire of commerce, early, early 18th century. Now she is an empire who is building uh, her power, not only because she 
controls the waves, Britannia rules the waves, but also because of land conquest, particularly in India. Uh, during Fuller's mm -hmm. lifetime, Britain had lost the jewel in the, her crown, uh, imperial crown, which was America. But it wasn't really as devastating a loss as it could have been because at the same time, Britain had replaced it with India. And Fuller is aware, in addition to this, that Britain has placed itself in the midst of this iniquity, which we call the slave trade, in which Britain alone brought probably out of the 11 million Africans who were taken from the continent and brought across the new world, Britain probably brought a third of those men and women, initially to America, but then to her, to her colonies um, in the Caribbean, places like Barbados, Jamaica, the Bahamas, Haiti. Haiti. Well, not Haiti. Haiti was France, right? No. Yep. Oh, of course. Yep. Um, Trinidad. And mm -hmm. these places were, they yielded massive, massive lucrative uh, fruit for the British Empire. And so Fuller here is intimating that there is a time where we must stand against the powers that be in our culture because they are engaged in activities that are destructive of human happiness, undermining uh, any uh, argument that we're in a benevolent people, um, etc. Right. And um, so Fuller was implacably opposed to the slave trade. But on the other hand, he recognized there is a place in which we must stand uh, shoulder to shoulder for the defense of the British Isles. See, even back then, he was saying not at the expense of justice. So he was using that term, right. I think in a, in a biblical way then, and, and he uses that phrase Christian principle, not at the expense of our Christian principles, and then took direct aim, uh, as we just saw at, at the slave trade. Now, in his lifetime, Michael, remind me of some dates here, he would see uh, the British Empire uh, or his own uh, England abolish the slave trade. It would continue until about 1833, but... It, was it 1811? Somewhere in there. 1807. Yeah. So this this sermon was preached in 1803. Uh, four, year, four years later, the slave trade is abolished okay. in England. And then slavery uh, destroyed right. as an institution in 1833 by Act of Parliament. Incredible. And a role that Fuller had in that, in addition to the many other things that he did. Well, well Michael, I want to, as we always do on this podcast, maybe, we, and we've alluded to a lot of things, but Andrew Fuller for today. Is there anything you would want to highlight as we close here? Um, Fuller's place in Baptist studies. Again, you're you're doing everything you can to raise up students that are studying Fuller, and I, I have to encourage you here. Uh, one of my Garrett fellows, uh, for those of you who don't know, one of my uh, uh, graders, uh, but he's, he's called a Garrett fellow, Steel Wright. He's doing some great work in Fuller, and he will, uh, <laughs> dare I say, blame you for that. So you're, do, you're doing some great work. A whole new generation of Fuller scholars are coming. We're doing our part at Southern, right? That's, yeah, very much so. So, um, yeah, there's probably a number of uh, reasons why Fuller, I think, is important for us. Not just the scholars to read, but for the church, um, the whole area of, of mission and evangelism. Uh, Fuller's ability to work in very close harmony with other Christian leaders men whom he counted as, uh, to use the language of the 18th century, bosom friends. Um, one of the disturbing things to me about the last hundred years or so in the celebrity culture that we've developed in the evangelical world is just the sense of rivalry and the way friendships are probably not as central to certain sectors of that world. Um, the way that pastors don't see friendship as utterly, utterly vital to their ministries. I, I, don't, I don't think a man can conduct a ministry without close friends successfully. Uh, Fuller had a, a number of them. Um, and when, they, when he couldn't see them personally, he wrote them uh, every few weeks. Uh, John Ryland, his biographer, who was his closest friend, said, if I didn't get a letter from Andrew... Every two weeks, I found it tedious, and by tedious, he meant 
upsetting. He didn't mean boring. He meant upsetting. He expected to hear from his brother and vice versa. And it, it's, a, it's something we've lost in the hurly-burly of 20th century life. And uh, I actually have a book coming out uh, called Iron Sharpens Iron on the friendships of these men. Uh, and also more reflections on friendship. But so that's I, I, that's one of the reasons why I love Fuller is because not only because of his brilliance as a theologian, but also because of his putting into into play in his own personal and pastoral life of values and uh, a- attitudes that are absolutely vital to a successful pastoral ministry today. Um, I, I wonder how many men in pastoral ministry, if you were to ask this question, how many close friends do you have to whom you can ask very open questions and they can do the same to you? Um, I wonder how many men in pastoral ministry are hiding. They've built personas and those who know them don't really know them. And, and what, what can happen is then we, we hear of these stories of pastors falling. Oh, yeah. Because they don't have that yeah. band of brothers that, that can help them persevere. Exactly. And related to this, Michael, I'm so impressed with how prolific, how busy for the Lord uh, Fuller was, given the tremendous suffering he went through. And we, we could catalog a number of things, not least of which he had 11 children, eight of which died either at birth or shortly after, you know, at, in in, in very young age. And he also lost his first wife to, to death. He remarried. Uh, but without that, back to your point, without that band of brothers, without those friends, how could he have persevered? You read his diaries. I'm so impressed with his diaries because like, a, like many diaries, very honest. And he, you can hear him pouring out his heart to the Lord and, and struggling with a lot of this sorrow and pain. But he's, he's got mm-hmm. people in his life. And a big part of his ability to persevere, of course, the grace of God. But that grace came in the form of brothers. Yeah, agreed. Now, I mean, Fuller does, I think, in some of his uh, busyness, he reflects evangelicalism. Um, His activism, he's an activist. And I'm not always certain that he was able to strike the balance between... um, uh, a Christian activity and time for prayer and reflection. Um, his wife, his second wife at one point said, you know, um, my dear, will you not take a rest? And he said something, well, doing a new task is my taking yes, a rest. Read that. But I'm not sure that's the best of answers. I think um, we're sure it's not. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, it probably no. isn't. And, but the other thing you have to remember too, again, people didn't take mm-hmm. holidays because where would you go? Nobody goes to the beach except for the upper class. Uh, the 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 uh, the poor have no way of getting there. It's not until the invention of the railway in the 1830s that changes British society that suddenly now they got cheap fares and they can go to places like I went to when I was a little boy, uh, Bournemouth and Brighton. And the seaside, and that that life. Nobody in Fuller's church took holidays. No. You know, there was nowhere to go. And how do you take holidays if you're a farmer? Most of these people are farmers. You don't. So I, I so his activism then has to be understood in that larger context. But I think for us, what it's saying is not everything in Fuller's lifetime is a model for our right. lives. Uh, you know, that's my point here, I think. Well, it, it's a good one. And I think we could all uh, do some inventory in our life. And, and maybe that overcommitting, I don't know. I'm not prepared to say fuller overcommitted. I, I often wonder as, you know, I train pastors like you, but I, I teach pastoral ministry, pastoral theology. And I've, I've looked in vain. Again, I haven't read, how could I read? I don't, I don't think I'll live long enough to read everything Fuller wrote. But I can't find any evidence, Michael, and maybe you have, where his church, and, and remind me, Kettering was where he spent the most time. Kettering. Kettering. Kettering, Kettering is the way you would um, say it, yeah. 
Yeah. I don't get any impression that that the church begrudged his activity or thought that he was no. neglecting them. No. Maybe just the opposite. No, we we have, we have diaries of people in the church and that they adored her, mm-hmm. they adored Fuller. And if he was gone, they just wanted him home because they loved him, not because they felt like I mean Fuller 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 does mention on more than one occasion. The reason why he said I've we've had peace in our church is because I love I love my people. Yeah, and I think the record bears that out. That that wasn't wishful thinking no, by no. Fuller. I think that that love was uh, felt by the church from him and and them to him. Yeah. I think that's the other thing I would want to stress. The reason why I think Fuller is important for us is that, like Jonathan Edwards, he was a theologian and pastor of love. Um, the the view that we have of Edwards, you know, sinners in the hands of an angry God, is the that's an unusual sermon for Edwards. Edward's more likely sermon was Heaven is a World of Love. And the same is Fuller. Fuller is an Edwardian. And mm-hmm. if you read through his ordination sermons, the, one of the key themes that comes through again and again and again is you have to be men of love. Your people have to know you love them. And it's not simply in the preaching in the pulpit. You have to be in their homes. You have to visit your people. He would write in his diary, saying, I miss my people. I long to be back home so I can care for them and, and check in with them. And what he meant by that, as you know, is check in on their soul. How are they doing with the Lord? He cared so deeply for their welfare. Uh, he'll write of, of missing them. And Michael, maybe this is the place to end. You mentioned love. Remember the quote we opened with, and this was his journal entry at the age of 25 in 1780. And he's pleading with the Lord. He writes, May, but but may I so love the truth as never to keep it back. So he didn't just say, I just want to know the truth, but I want to love the truth such that it has to flow out of me. And I think we have a life where that in fact happened. Beads Podcast is in partnership with H&E Publishing, a reformed and Canadian publishing house seeking to spread the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through the publication of Church History, biblical spirituality, Christian living, and theology. Join us next time as we seek to see what God has done in the history of His people.